Advent, beginning of, of the Advent season, I thought what I'd like to try to do this morning is to kick off Advent with a message that points us in the right direction. I think that's the main thing. If we can get pointed in the right direction. I used to think about how many times in the past, you know, when I was first starting out, that I was expending energy in all sorts of directions. And I realized that part of the spiritual journey is putting the X over the treasure on the treasure map so that you're not just digging holes, but you're actually getting someplace that you want to go. And so that's what we're going to try to do this morning, see if we can point in the right direction. And now that the Hinkelmans are here, it's perfect. We got a great start. It's good to see you guys, and good to see you, buddy. Yeah, well, he's, I got eye contact for days right here. That's perfect. Wow. <laughs> so last week, last week we talked about gratitude. But we talked about gratitude in a little bit different way. It wasn't just about, you know, being aware of the big blessings, being aware of the things that we would even recognize as blessings in our lives. But if we really want to become people that are characterized by gratitude, that really live a life of gratitude, then something really fundamental has to change. There is a whole different attitude toward life that we need to embrace. Because now we're talking about finding something to be grateful for everywhere we look, finding a gift that we could never give ourselves in every situation, whether we have worked really, really hard in that particular circumstance, or whether we're suffering really, really badly in that circumstance, to be able to look at life and see that there are always gifts being poured upon us. It's a fundamental different way of looking at life. We talked about just the fact of looking at the sky. How often do we really look at the sky? And seeing those clouds and realizing that that particular pattern of clouds has never existed before in the history of the world whether that's 6,000 years of a young earth creationist or 4 billion if you're not, it's never existed before and it will never exist again. Absolutely unique. And to get lost in that shape, to get lost in that particular angle of light, to realize that everything that we experience is a gift that we could never give ourselves. A fundamental change, a different way of processing and living life. And we tied that, of course, to, to Thanksgiving about Thanksgiving being a kickoff point where we can be aware that what we're trying to do is something really, really different. Not just counting blessings, but living them in the, in, in the seemingly most insignificant moments. And then as we were thinking about Thanksgiving, I was thinking about Thanksgiving. It's like, you know, Thanksgiving is like the last holiday that really has been kind of untouched by commercial processes. Have you thought about that before? You know? I mean, there are no Thanksgiving cards. There's no Thanksgiving gifts. There's no Thanksgiving fireworks. You know, it's just sort of Thanksgiving, which is really kind of cool. hasn't been really commercialized yet and hopefully won't be. It's mostly about family connections and family gatherings. Now, we do know that families can be dysfunctional, and, and so that may impact things a little bit. But when you think about it, people don't really stress so much over Thanksgiving. There was my daughter who made her first turkey this Thanksgiving, and that was a bit stressful for her, especially when she pulled it out and realized the bottom hadn't cooked yet and everybody was looking at her. But in general, you know, people, we don't really stress over Thanksgiving. 
We do have our dysfunctional family moments. In fact, we were driving out Friday. Marion's family always has uh, Thanksgiving on Friday. So we were driving out to Cherry Valley on Friday. It's 80 miles from here. And we were listening to a radio show. And this one call-in radio show host had people calling in and asking about, did you have a Thanksgiving blow-up this year? And everybody was calling in to talk about their blow-ups for the Thanksgiving season or if they had one or if they didn't have one. But beyond that... We don't really stress over Thanksgiving so much. And maybe I think it's because it hasn't been commercialized much. I see a few people really enjoying this Thanksgiving blow-up part here. So, you know, they're, they're, What? Oh, you guys stress over Thanksgiving? Okay, you're blowing my whole premise here. You know, I've got to come up with a new metaphor on the fly. Uh, okay, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you stress as much over Thanksgiving as you do over Christmas? Okay, well then there's really a a place upstairs for you for counseling and for treatment. Let me try to regroup here. What there isn't, all right, even if there is stress over here among some of you, (laughs) what there isn't is a syndrome of depression associated with Thanksgiving the way there is with Christmas. Can you all agree with me on that? Can I get an amen? All right, thank you. Because there's a big deal about about holiday depression that centers around Christmas and the New Year and all of that. And, you know, I, I was thinking, why would that be? There's some things that make sense. But I found an article that really kind of put it in perspective. And this psychologist comes up with three main reasons why there is so much depression during the holidays. And you know, then there's a bunch of little subcategories of, of stressors and whatnot for each one of these three. But as I read through these, see how many you can tick off on your mental list. Because I had a few. The first one is just the demands and the stress of the season itself, all right, that is contributing toward the depression. During the holidays, there is an increase in the number of activities, tasks, and social events that people must manage. Shopping and gift buying can cause financial and emotional stress and can create a need to manage crowds and traffic and mails of large stores and malls of large stores. Family, school, neighborhood, and work celebrations and parties create social time and energy demands. Traveling to be with family or friends for the holidays can cause a variety of additional stress. Being unable to be with family or friends for whatever reason can also be highly stressful. If you're experiencing a significant loss or actively grieving, the holidays can be more stressful. School, work, and sleep schedules are often disrupted during the holidays. And healthy ways of managing stress, like ensuring good nutrition and daily exercise, are often interrupted, which is clinical speak for saying they're out the window, basically, right? Two, family issues. The holidays are synonymous with family, so any issues that a person has with their family will come to the forefront during this time. If there is loss, dysfunction, addiction, abuse, disconnection, separation, estrangement, or divorce proceedings occurring or affecting your family, then there is the likelihood that you will have to manage the emotions that are related to these issues. For someone already managing depression, it's an additional emotional burden. And the third one, which is the big one for me, is managing expectations. Although the holidays can be a time for celebration and a return to the faith or values or people that help provide support for us, all of the increased demands on our time, energy, patience, and flexibility can take a toll. 
People greeting each other with the expression, happy holidays, can even be perceived by someone with depression as a demand or an expectation that they cannot meet. Wow. Imagine if you said Merry Christmas. What would happen then? For those managing depression who may already be struggling with symptoms of fatigue, irritability, sadness, and feeling unable to cope with change or additional stress, the result of all the additional stress of the holidays can be simply feeling unable to meet those expectations, which can unfortunately lead to increased feelings of depression. When one of the expectations of a holiday is to be happy, think about that. One of the expectations of the holidays is to be happy. There is a 100% chance of failure for the person with depression. Ah, Marion likes to watch these, these Hallmark Christian, uh, Christmas movies. Have you seen those things? Man, every time, I can, I can tell that she's watching it just by the music in the next room. It has a very distinctive kind of music. And you walk in, and invariably, there is this beautifully lit room. It's just all golden and amber. And there's lights strung everywhere, and everybody is decked out, smiling and happy. Yeah, I know they have a lot of dysfunction going on there, but it, just that image alone. We're supposed to live up to that? How do we do that? I mean, they can't even do that, but it looks like they're doing pretty well. So there's a 100% chance that you're not going to be able to live up to that. A common symptom of depression is anhedonia. Have you ever heard that term before? Anhedonia? The loss of the interest of previously enjoyable activities or the inability to experience pleasure. It just takes us down that hole, right? Due to the increase in stressful demands, inability to sidestep family issues, and difficulty managing expectations, the holidays can leave a person dealing with depression with increased feelings of sadness, guilt, inadequacy, overwhelm, alienation, and unworthiness. Wow. Feeling better? You know, all of this stuff is true, but for me, there is one really big expectation that I think we need to talk about, and that is an interior emotionally remembered expectation, as I think the best way I can put it. An interior, emotionally remembered expectation. Because when it comes to Christmas, what exactly are we remembering? What are we trying to recreate? We're trying to recreate our childhood experience, right? I mean, think about that for a second. Think about that. We learned what Christmas was all about as a child, through a child's eyes, from a vantage point three feet off the ground. That's what we learned about Christmas. We're trying to recreate that experience through adult eyes, six feet off the ground, five feet off the ground. The world looks really different from that height than it does from his, right? And so here we are trying to recreate what we remember Christmas to be all about, a time when we felt relatively safe, secure, when things were still taken care of for of us, for us. And now we're trying to get there. That's the stress part, right? We're worrying about not getting there. There's the anxiety. Then we have the experience of not getting there, and there's the depression. When you think about it, Christmas is a perfect storm for children. Think about what a child experiences from the height that a child experiences it. We were, we were just at, at, uh, at Thanksgiving, um, you know, on Friday, and there were, someone brought their dog. And here's this dog running around, and here's all these adults standing. I'm thinking, what does the world look like from that vantage point, only this far off the ground, looking up into this forest of people? But someone who's hip high, it's not a similar experience. What do they see? How do they see the world? It's so different 
than we see it or process it as adults. There are lights, decorations, candy, treats, magical beliefs, right? Gifts, suspense, and anticipation. From three feet high, it's all just morphing into this breathless wonder. Can you remember what that felt like as a child? The excitement, the magic, the mystery. There was Santa, there was baby Jesus, angels, wise men, (laughs) stars, snowmen. I remember as a child, I don't know how old I was, I was, you know, probably looking for Santa. But I'm looking out my bedroom window which had a screen over the glass, and there was a really bright star just right over the horizon, and I'm looking straight at it. And all, as I'm looking at it, the light from the star shaped, was shaped in a cross, and I was just transported. I was looking at the star of Bethlehem with the cross. Every card I'd ever seen had a cross coming out of that star, and there it was. It was only years later that I realized it was playing out through the grids of the screen, and that's why it looked that way, but not for me at the moment. It was the star of Bethlehem, and I was seeing the cross of Jesus. And it was just transporting. We forget what that was like mentally as we move into the adult world. But you know what? Our heart doesn't forget. Our heart remembers that feeling. Our heart wants that feeling back again. And the holidays are a trigger for us to try to recreate what the heart remembers from three feet off the ground. We spend our whole lives trying to recreate that in a certain way through our adult eyes. And what we remember of Christmas, what we really long for emotionally of Christmas, is this spirit of the child. Not really Christmas itself. It's that longing for the loss of that childhood experience, that ability to be right where he is right now, making Gail and Bill laugh. See? It's that kind of experience. That's really what we're trying to recreate. To remember childhood, to remember the childlike experience is to remember Christmas, to remember who we really are. And to re-experience Christmas as the heart remembers means we have to re-experience what Jesus called Talia. When Jesus said that you needed to be converted like a child, the word he used there was Talia. And if you've been here for any amount of time, we've gone over this, where Talia means two things at once, like most ancient Aramaic words do. They have multiple layers of meaning. But the two main meanings of Talia is not only a child, but also a bondservant or a domestic slave. How do the two work in tandem? We have the child who has naturally that that wonder, right? That ability to just experience and process things as they are unquestioningly. The dependence, the vulnerability of the child along with that excitement like that and that wonder. But what does the servant bring that the child can't? Volition. He can't help but be what he is because nerve and synapse hasn't completely closed over and allowed him to process as an adult would. A servant can do that. A servant has a choice, and that's the main thing. Now, maybe if it's a slave, the choice is only to serve or die, but it's still a choice to make. What the servant brings is the volition, the choice to be humble, the choice to be vulnerable, the choice to process the world from either a standing height of three feet or a kneeling height at the same level. That's what Talia is all about. It's the blending of those two concepts. 
We know what a child looks like. But to choose that for yourself, to revere that, to value that, that is a completely different experience. As Talia, every moment, any moment can be Christmas. Regardless of the circumstance, just as any moment can be a moment filled with gratitude, it's the same thing. If we choose to see the world in a certain way, if we choose to change our attitudes towards life, every moment can be Christmas, filled with the anticipation of a gift that we could never give ourselves. And what does that kind of abandon, what does that kind of excitement, engagement, what does that kind of fearless vulnerability really look like if we look at it in life? For the last few years, it's kind of become a little bit of a tradition, I suppose. I've read a story in here, and it takes about 10 minutes to read. And I want to read it again this morning because it's one you probably heard, but not for a while. And um, as I was reading it again last night, I was realizing, you know, this isn't the greatest writing in the world. It's not exactly up there with Tolstoy. But and in fact, O. Henry wrote this, the, the, the legend goes, in two to three hours, sitting at Pete's Tavern on Irvine Place in New York City, wildly behind and past his deadline, and had to crank this thing out. And he cranked out this story supposedly in two to three hours. But it has been an enduring story in, in American literature and in our culture. And of course, it's called The Gifts of the Magi. But just maybe while I read this, go into your best theater of the mind, pose. Maybe close your eyes and just see if you can see the scene as he is, the scenes as he is developing them and get to this amazing point that he's making. One dollar and 87 cents. That was all. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. And the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did that, which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with the sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at $8 per week. $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In other words, it was really run down. In the vestibule below was a letterbox into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 a week. Now when the income was shrunk to $20, though, they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with a powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking on a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present.
She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim, her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him, something fine and rare and sterling, something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you've seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and agile person can, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Delobine Slender had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day just to dry and depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee, and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat, with a whirl of skirts and with a brilliant sparkle still in her eyes. She fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Safrone, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself panting. Madam, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Saffroni. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, Madam said. Take your hat off. Let's have a sight of the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madam, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Well, forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. And she found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the 87 cents. With that watch, with that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached her home, her intoxication gave way to a little prudence and a little reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear readers, a mammoth task. 
Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island's chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At 7 o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stairway, way down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God. Make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of a quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair, asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact, even at the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone, he said, with an almost air of idiocy. Well, you needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone too. It's Christmas Eve, boy, be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden serious sweetness. But nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall he put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. And then he drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it on the table. Don't make any mistake about me, Dell, he said. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me think anything or like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string in the paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful, vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers. But the tresses that should have adorned the coveted ornaments were gone. But she hugged them to her chest, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. 
And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh, Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly on her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, he said, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your coats. And now you suppose you put the chops off. <laughs> this gets me every time. I'm a sucker. Imagine the scene, though. Imagine it. Can you see it? Can you see it? Those two beautiful and utterly useless gifts lying there. The useless presents that are more valuable than any on earth. He finishes this way. The Magi, you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents, Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest. Everywhere, they are the wisest. They are the Magi. Have you ever loved someone like that? More than life, more than any possessions itself, have you ever loved anyone to the extent that you would withhold nothing? Full extension, full abandon, full engagement, full go. Have you ever loved like a total fool? Have you ever done that? It creates a childlike, fearless vulnerability in us when we do that. And we will take our love to that degree, to that extension. And it becomes like Christmas every day. I have a friend. I have, I still have him. He's still a friend. I went to grammar school and high school with him. And I remember at our 10th high school reunion. That's a ways back now. But our 10th, I was just talking to him, and I really hadn't seen him much in those 10 years. And we actually sat down, cross-legged, on the dance floor (laughs) during this thing, and he just laid out the pictures of his kids. And he was all daughters at the time. And, uh, you know, we're we're still in our 30s. We're not that old. And I just remember him staring at those pictures, and he said, I can't believe how much I love these girls. You know? And I sort of looked at him, and... I heard the words he was saying, but I didn't understand them. I didn't understand the intensity behind them. And I don't know if it's really possible to do that until you've had the kids of your own. And you love something that can't possibly love you back. That can't give you anything really in return. I mean, what do babies really give us besides bodily fluids at a certain (laughs) age, you know? And noise. (laughs) You know, if you if you put having children on paper, man, it does not pencil out. <laughs> Especially when you get into high school, it does not pencil out. 
unless you've been there and you see how the intangible things, the things that you cannot imagine, just slam the scales in the other direction. How will you know? How can you know? Our view of love is limited by our experience of love, our ability to love in that way, completely selflessly, where possessions and, and, and things just don't mean anything in the face of the other, of seeing that smile, of knowing that you put that smile there. How do we move into that kind of love? The kind of love that Jesus shows us in the Gospels. The kind of love that O. Henry was trying to show us in Jim and Della, and then equating that love to the Magi. The Magi. The Magi loved like that? How does that exactly work? Who were these Magi anyway? Let's read Matthew 2, verse 1. This is the only place in the entire Bible where we hear about the Magi. Only in Matthew. And everything we're going to read here is all there is about the Magi. These three little paragraphs. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, For this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report back to me so that I too may come and worship. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. The miracle of the Magi is that they recognized Jesus for what he was. Think about that for a second. Who are these Magi anyway? Well, History tells us, and, and other literature tells us, that they were, they were priests, they were astronomers, they were wise and learned men, obviously. Daniel was probably a magi. He held that position, at least, occupied that space. A co-regent, uh, a co-ruler, an advisor to the king, someone who was learned, a seer, someone that the, that the, the administrators, administrators would turn to to be able to try to understand what choices to make and how to make them. These were who the Magi were. They came from Babylon. They came from Persia. At the time of Jesus, it was now called Parthia, the Parthian Empire. There had been a succession of empires, but that was the region, that fertile crescent, that area that is now Iran, was, was, was where they were from. They were powerful men. They were learned men. But they were men 
whose singular and focused search for truth drove them on an arduous journey after centuries of watching the stars, after centuries of looking for the signs and looking for ways to interpret those signs as to how they were going to play out in human affairs. They see this sign in the sky that they call the star, and they headed off on this arduous journey that was a dangerous journey because they had to cross the frontier between Parthia and Rome, constant fighting there. And yet they made this journey to Israel. And when they enter into that space and they see this helpless infant, Luke 2 tells us lying in a manger, which tells us that he was poor. His family was poor. They didn't have means. They didn't have pedigree necessarily, at least not one that they could recognize. And yet in that infant, within this family, they saw truth. They saw the face of the king, the ruler that they were seeking. How many of us could do that? How many of us have been prepared to the point that we can see truth from wherever it comes and not just where we expect it to be? Can see blessings from where they are really coming from? Can see gifts that we could never give ourselves in the most insignificant things? Now, the Magi brought gifts. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, the three traditional gifts. The gold obviously signified the king. The frankincense, since it was the incense used in the temple, signified God. And the myrrh, since it was used usually as an ointment for the dead, signified man. And so those three traditional gifts see Jesus as king, as God, as man, and also as priest, and also in in terms of physical, spiritual, and death. All of these images are there contained in those gifts. And so the gifts are really significant, the ones that they brought. But if you stop and think about it, what was the most precious, the greatest gift that the Magi brought to Jesus? It was themselves. It was their own presence. And it's that way with every single one of us. Our time, our presence is all we really possess if it comes right down to it. Everything else, we're just rearranging chairs on the deck of the ship, right? But our presence is ours. Our time is ours. What we choose to do with it, the choices we make with our presence, is the measure of our lives. I like to say often that all of you here, who could only be one place at one time, because you're here, you're saying to us that of all the places that you could have been, this was the most important place that you could possibly be. You made this choice to be here and absolutely nowhere else. The Magi chose to be there and absolutely nowhere else of all the places they could be that would have much greater standing. They were there. We have the same choice. Jim and Della and Jesus gave their greatest possessions. Their watch their hair, their life. But all of it was given with the presence of the Magi. Because without that presence, what does a gift really mean? Without that awareness, without that connection, how is it that we really give our presence? How do we do that? Only as Talia three feet off the ground, from the standing height of a child, from the kneeling height of a servant, only then is presence really real. When it's dependent 
interdependent, when it's vulnerable, when it's submitted, as the Magi were, only then is our presence really real. In Luke 2, when Jesus is described in that manger, helpless, poor, just an infant, Jesus' presence among us is dependent, and it's vulnerable, and it's submitted. And only those equally present in the same way as Jesus will recognize him for who he is. Because we tend to look down on vulnerability. We look down on what we perceive as weakness. But when we are watching and looking from the same height, we're going to see what things really look like from that perspective. The only way that we can recognize Jesus is looking at him from the same level. This was the genius of the Magi. That as powerful as they were, they approached Jesus on bended knee. They approached Jesus from that place, that wonder, three feet off the ground. And here's a key detail that the Gospels tell us. That Jesus didn't grow out of his vulnerability into power. He grew into more and more vulnerability and submission in his whole life. That's what he valued. That's what he saw. He perfected his vulnerability. Where did he perfect it completely? Of course, at the cross. The ultimate act of vulnerability. The ultimate act of selflessness. The ultimate act of being able to see the gift of the beloved, no matter what the circumstances were at the moment. He grew into it. He nurtured it. He perfected it. He treasured it. And he told us there's no kingdom Without this, there is no way that you could know who you really are without this. And there's no Christmas either without this kind of presence, without our ability to lower perspective, lower our perspective. It's not the Christmas we remember with our hearts, not the Christmas we remember from our childhood. We can't experience that from six feet off the ground. Christmas is the celebration of our humble God. Jesus is showing us that this is who the Father is, an unassuming God, a humble God, a God who is a servant above all else, who withholds nothing and showers everything out the way Della and Jim did. Christmas is a celebration of that God, of our childhood, of vulnerability and submission. And we can't enter Christmas and we can't enter kingdom without re-entering our childlikeness. We need to lower our viewpoint back to three feet off the ground where watches and hair mean absolutely nothing in the face of the beloved. And we can only see Christmas from the standing height of a child and the kneeling height of a servant. And we can only give ourselves, we can only give ourselves the gifts of the Magi, the vulnerable presence of the Magi. And then, We can see Christmas as our heart really remembers it, or maybe as we've never experienced it before. Let's pray. Father, you are an unassuming God. You are a humble God. It's hard for us to imagine you, Lord, that way. We have so many images that contradict. Help us to begin to value humility, 
vulnerability and dependence in our own lives. Help us to begin to see gifts that we couldn't give ourselves everywhere we look. Help us to begin to see Christmas moments everywhere we look. And in the next four weeks, in the run-up to Christmas, Lord, help us to become intentional. Help us to become conscious of this reworking of our basic attitudes. Father, we want to value what you value. We want to mirror what you live so that we can enter into the peace that passes all understanding that we can only have consciously connected to you. That's our prayer, Father. Take us wherever you would like us to go because we know it will always be into your heart. Help us to lay down the fears and lay down the places of resistance so that we can move closer to you each day of this Christmas season. Father, thank you for your love, ever, evergreen love that you give us. Never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.